This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. Welcome to the official tennis.com podcast featuring professional coach and community leader, Kamal Murray. Welcome to the tennis.com podcast. I am your host, Kamal Murray, and we are here with a very famous writer, a writer who has worked for many networks, many publications, but has taken on the risk of writing a book about probably the greatest male tennis player to ever play the game. And the reason why it's a risk is because when you think about this person, and I'm going to wait to say the name, it can become a monotonous book. It could be chapter one through 30 are all about how great this person was and how perfect this person was and how he was made to play tennis. So it's a huge risk writing about somebody like that because there really is not a lot of diversity in the story right? Uh, not a lot of villainous sort of stories and, and outtakes. Um, and that person is Roger Federer. So we want to welcome Simon Chambers to the show. Simon, welcome. Thank you very much for having me. So, you know, when I think of Roger, most people have only great things to say about him. And I'll start with like a personal story. And I think that, you know, in my era, I grew up in Chicago and the greatest athlete, greatest basketball player of all time, arguably still to this day is Michael Jordan. And I was old enough to party in clubs the same time he partied in clubs. And when he entered the room, he had this glow about him. It was a money glow. I mean, the skin's perfect. The clothes are perfect. Nothing was off the rack. It's like he walked through the club and the Red Sea parted. Nobody dared to ask for a photo or ask for an autograph. It was like, let the man buy and don't say a word. And Roger is probably the only tennis player that I've been around that I've seen have that impact on every other person on the grounds. And I remember 2018, I was coaching Sloan Stevens. She made it to the finals of Roland Garros. Month later, we're in Wimbledon. Saturday before the tournament, you know, all the media is there. I'm walking down um, sort of the tunnel that connects uh, Wimbledon to Orangi. Yeah. And Roger's walking my way. And I'm thinking in my mind, I'm like, do I say anything? Do I, do I speak? Do I wait to see if he speaks? And if he speaks, what do I say? Do I say what I want to say? Like, hey, what's up, bro? Or, hey, how's it going? Or, hey, how you doing? Hey, what do you say, right? And I said, you know what? Let me just not speak. And I kept walking. I get about three feet from him. He looks at me, he says, hey, come out. Well done. Tough one. Tough one in Roland Garros, but well done. And I was like, oh, thanks, bro. Right? And it was just, A, it was so shocking that he could have easily put his head down and walked past me. B, he knew my name. See, he connected my name and my face with what had happened a month ago uh, to provide contact. And when I look at your book and I read some of the chapters, all the stories are about how he made someone feel. 
And so I think that in that moment, he made me feel like I was part of the club and relevant, right? And important in that moment. So that's my Roger Federer story. So how do you write a book when all the stories are going to be something close to that? Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a very good question. Um, it's, it's not easy to, you know, that it was one of the, when I was talking to friends about writing it, and I, I should say that, you know, I co-wrote this book with Simon Graf, who's a, a Swiss journalist who's covered Federer for the whole of his life and knows him probably much better than I do. Um, but when I was talking to friends about it, they were just saying, just make sure it's not too, you know, too schmaltzy, too nice. You know, we want to see a bit of the other side of Federer too. And we were trying to tell his story. We are trying to tell his story in a slightly different way, you know, looking through the eyes of those whose lives he impacted. Now, obviously, because of who he is, he impacted a lot of people's lives positively. But I think there are enough little bits in each of the chapters from each of the people where they sort of broach subjects that, you know, weren't necessarily Roger's greatest moment. But there tends to be on the other side of that, he comes out of it still looking pretty good. Everyone knows that, you know, it's like you're talking about Michael Jordan. I mean, now we've all seen The Last Dance and we know that Jordan was not the nicest guy in the world. You know, there was a lot, a lot more to him than we know um, or than we knew at the time. With Roger, we, you know, somebody, I can't, I can't remember who it was, but described him as the absolute king of the backhanded compliment. You know, no one gives a little nudge seems like a compliment but actually there was a bit more to it than than you imagined than Federer but he did it with a smile and because it was him you always thought hmm, okay that probably probably didn't mean that but maybe he did he's a he was a champion he was you know all these champions have egos they all have um incredible winners attitude and sometimes that comes across in a in a different way and not as nice a way as you'd imagine but I mean, it's it is it was hard because he he did create such a an amazing impact on so many people. It was hard to make sure that it wasn't all nice all the way through. Now, you know, his personality is one that lends you say, "Hey, Roger, we want to write a book about you." His personality lends him say, "Yeah, that's all right." You know, write about somebody else. Write it about Serena, her impact yeah. on. I could see him saying her impact on the game. And on the people was much more than mine. I can see him sort of deferring and attempting to give somebody else the spotlight. So when you tried to write the book or you started began the process, did you confer with him and let's say Tony to say, hey, here's what we're doing? Do you, did you need their blessing or is like, you know, we're just gonna do it? Well, we we sort of knew that Roger doesn't authorize any books about him. So we knew that it was very, very unlikely we were gonna be able to actually get a sit down with Roger. Now I've interviewed Roger a couple of times over the years one-to-one -one, which was a, a great experience and obviously I've spoken to him countless times in uh, press conferences around the world and Simon the same he's interviewed him more than I have but uh, he was never going to authorize the book as an official you know biography if you like he just doesn't do that and as you know there have been a lot of books about Federer already um, but we did speak to so what we did is we started to gather the interviews and as we did we realized that actually there was a you know, a good, really good story to be told. And the one thing we tried to do was to split it into chapters according to the impact that he had on these people. So we have, you know, like fans and friends and rivals and peers and the professionals. So we talked to Mary Carrillo as an unbelievable commentator about what it's like to try and commentate on Roger Federer because, you know, when you're watching someone who just makes it look all so easy, 
what do you say? So she was amazing about that. Each person was good on their own subject. But I think it's just, you know, we, we knew that it was unlikely we were going to get to speak to his inner circle um, any more than we already had done. So I didn't try and speak to Ivan Lubacic, for example. Um, Simon Graf knows Severin Luti very well, but we just left them alone because we didn't want to, you know, upset the apple cart. But we, we spoke to Tony. We told Tony what we were doing. And about three or four months before we finished it, Simon Graf told Federer. And uh, Federer's like, okay, okay. You know, he didn't endorse it. He didn't say, this is great. <laughs> but he said, okay, he wasn't anti it. And then I saw him at the Labour Cup for his last, uh, his last professional match. And I told him uh, a couple of days before, I said, um, you know that uh, I've been co-writing a book on you and it's been a pleasure to write. It's been really interesting. And, and he said, I hope, you know, I hope it goes well and look forward to reading it. And whether he meant it or not, it made me feel good. So that was nice. So you talk about the various chapters and the one that I sort of dove in the most was the one where what his competitors had to say, right, uh, about him. So, you know, James Blake has some great things. Mahout has yeah. some great things. Pick out a story for us, right? So we pick up this book and you say, you know what, I got, you know, I don't know how everyone else reads, but I read when I'm on the toilet, right? I got three kids. So I like trying to find, I got limited time, right? Pick out a story in the, let's say the competitor section where you think is most shocking, right? Other than, you know, James Blake said, you know, I, I feel like I could beat anybody except Federer, right? You know what I mean? That's obvious. But pick, give us something where it was like, oh, this is kind of interesting. Yeah, I, I think, um, and it was a story I didn't know. I, I would say that um, a lot of people started to talk about the 2017 Australian Open as being Rogers, perhaps Rogers' greatest achievement ever. You know, coming back from six months out, uh, no one knew what kind of shape he'd be in. And he goes and comes out and wins the Australian Open in unbelievable style with this new backhand return that no one had seen. You know, we'd been begging for him to hit it for ages. He'd been chipping that return to Nadal. Suddenly it all turned around. And we spoke to, you know, as you said, we spoke to his rivals. Or we actually spoke to Tony Nadal, to uh, Novak Djokovic, his coach, Marion Vida, and to Mark Pecci, um, who coached Andy Murray at various times and got their insights. But what was fascinating for me was speaking to Craig O'Shaughnessy, who I'm sure you know, you know, as a, as a really good analyst, an interesting guy at, at the best of times. But I said to him, because you know, he just started working with uh, Federer, um, with uh, Djokovic, excuse me, um, in 2017. Uh, Djokovic lost to Dennis Istomin in the second round of the Australian Open, but Craig, being Australian, was hanging around, having a nice time in Melbourne, finishing his job, doing his analysis. And uh, I said to him, were you surprised that Federer, the way he came out and played that final against Nadal? And as I said, he, he started to be more aggressive on his backhand and from 3-1 down in the final set, he just went nuts, cut loose, played five of the best games you'd ever see in your life. And he, and he sort of got really animated and he said, no, no, I wasn't because he got a call from Severin Luti, Federer's coach, the night before saying, look, Craig, we need some help here. I want some advice. And so those guys met on the morning of the final and it was fascinating to hear Craig sort of explain what he was trying to get across to Severin Luti. He laid out a number of different tactical things that he could try against Nadal, but the one main one was he said, you cannot slice your backhand return or block it. You've got to go for it because, you know, it works well against everyone in the world except Nadal. 
and uh, this is what you've got to do. And I've, I've never heard that story told before. And of course, you know, Federer went on to win that and then it sparked his uh, renaissance in later years. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So when uh when you think about Roger Federer, right, we think about his composure, right? Everyone talks about how composed he was, but there are also a lot of stories about early in his career. Yeah. And maybe a little bit of YouTube video on some of the the, the young Federer and his anger and his tirade and just the frustration with losing right and how he handles sort of defeat yeah uh, you did write a chapter about roger the student yeah and i think the thing is because as his career went on so did social media grew so did you know the media so, it, so even the early stuff gets drowned out by the massive amount of content that we have access to now yeah. right but tell us a little bit about Roger, the student, right? Because, you know, me, I'm a coach, right? And I actually love the fiery personality because I yeah. feel like you need some of that, right? You need, you can't be indifferent to the result. And sometimes yeah. composure can be misunderstood as complacency and indifference. Uh, yeah. And early, when kids are early in their career, they have a hard time masking it and it just comes out. But then later in their career, it's it's within, right? Um, mm. when it's state football. So tell me about a good story around the student chapter. Yeah, I mean it's interesting. I've I've heard Federer talk himself recently about how, you know, in those years when he was not winning Grand Slam titles, 12, 2012 to 17, he got to a lot of finals, but he was he lost final sets six two quite a lot, that sort of thing. And people were asking, you know, why he's just not trying hard enough. He, he doesn't look like he's trying. He doesn't isn't got it inside him anymore. And he he was really frustrated because, of course, he was. Um, but he had turned himself into that machine that from 2004 onwards just won all the time. So he didn't even have to worry about getting angry on court. <laughs> yeah, it's it, it, it's fascinating. <clears throat> when you go back to talking to the guys who worked with him when he was really young. I mean, Sven Kronefeld, the uh, Dutch coach who obviously worked with Maria Sharapova and many players, he was head of the Swiss Tennis Foundation, or Swiss Tennis uh, Federation, excuse me, when Federer was coming through um, as a teenager. And he talks of Federer, you know, being pretty badly behaved in terms of, it was never, it was never picking on another player. He was never getting in someone's face or anything like that, but it was always about him. He was a perfectionist, as you might imagine, and he couldn't handle, Sven says that he just could not handle playing okay or well. He had to play perfectly. As anyone who's ever played any sport knows, there is no such thing as perfection. And if you aim for it, you're going to fail. But he really was desperate to play as perfect tennis as he could, even at that age. And he threw his racket all over the place. He got involved in all sorts of awkward situations in terms of his behaviour on courts. He... Um, Sven tells a story about how I think there was some, you know, some sponsors uh, regalia at the back of the court 
and Federer threw his racket and it hit the curtain and broke the sponsor's uh, hoardings at the back and caused a lot of fuss. And, but the interesting thing was, you know, how do you deal with someone who does behave like that? Do you just discipline them really hard or do you sort of work with them to try and get to what's, you know, what's causing that? And I think the sign of it, a good coach is that they deal with everyone individually in general and they work out what works for them. And Sven said, we knew, we felt that we couldn't just say to Roger, you can't play for two weeks because he would go nuts and it would just do turn him, maybe turn him off tennis. Even. So what they did was they put him on sort of court cleaning duty and stuff like that, but he, he was still allowed to train. He was still allowed to play. And that sort of eased him, eased him through that period. I mean, there are plenty of other stories of him throwing his racket. Um, I don't think he necessarily was a swearer badly on court. I mean, he can speak so many languages, he could probably hide it nicely. Right. But, but yeah, it was generally, <clears throat> generally throwing rackets and just getting incredibly frustrated. And you can see that even in, if you go back and look at video of his early, early matches on court, on the tour, you know, he, he lost to a lot of good players a lot of top players, a lot early on. He lost to Hewitt, I think the first, four of the first five or five five out of five. Tim Henman beat him a lot. Pat Rafter beat him three times out of three. Well, Pat, in the book, Pat Rafter says, you know, I, I got lucky. I got him before he became uh, Roger. But still, there were people who got on top of him and Rafter even describes him as being mentally really weak. And the, the interesting thing is Peter Lundgren was working with uh, Federer when Federer won his first Grand Slam at Wimbledon. Before that, Rafter played Fed, uh, Federer three times, as I said, and you know he said he he remembers Peter being really annoyed because Federer was really weak mentally and still lost lost it on court. And a lot of the stories, and this is another thing that you have to be careful with when we were writing the book, is a lot of people referred to Peter Carter, the Australian coach, who was clearly an enormous figure in in Roger's life. Um, in the early days and, and tragically, sadly died um, in a car accident when Federer was, it was in 2002. So it was before he'd won a Grand Slam. A lot of people attribute Carter's death to Federer turning, you know, away from this uh, person, you know, this young, rash individual who would lose it on court and mentally struggle to keep it all together to someone who just harnessed everything that he had into becoming the best player he could, becoming calmer on court, becoming more focused. And, you know, look what he did after that. Yeah, you know, I want to talk about, because you spoke to Tony Nadal. Yeah. About Federer. And I think that, you know, when you're behind Federer's ball competing, he's so all over you yeah. and on top of you that it's not until after the match that you sort of are able to process what happened. Did Tony say anything, right, as it relates to, because Tony arguably, you know, you look at Tony, you look at uh, his relationship with Nadal and Djokovic, right? Um, yep. And they're the ones who would say, there is no kryptonite, so I don't want to say kryptonite, but have very good insight into any potential cracks and vulnerabilities yep. in Roger's game. Did Tony reveal anything interesting as it relates to how he helped Rafa, you know, compete against Federer, break him down on certain surfaces, et cetera, right? I mean, obviously Clay, right? Yeah. Yeah, he, he did. He was very interesting. He, he, I mean, it, it's, it's sort of obvious because, you know, 
it's all about the Federer backhand. When Federer was young, people thought Federer had a bad backhand, a weak backhand. It's obviously all relative, but you know, it was definitely a weakness for him. And quite a lot of the people in the book talk about that. And Nadal, Tony Nadal said Federer's biggest mistake was that he allowed Nadal, he allowed Rafa to just pick on his backhand by just chipping that return back, by blocking. He wasn't aggressive enough. He couldn't dictate rallies. And it was just easy on clay, especially for Nadal always had that out shot, the out ball that he could just hook up high to the backhand. And he knew that after a while, chances are it would either break down or it drop short and Nadal could pummel it away for a winner. He mentioned once one uh, match they played in Miami, I think it was, or maybe, no, it was, must've been in um, Dubai where Federer was struggling. And obviously we know that uh, coaching is not allowed, what was not allowed from the stands, but (laughs) some coaches get away with it better than others. Um, Tony said that he told Federer after, he told Nadal after a set of a match in a final somewhere where he said Nadal was just being beaten by Federer, who was on fire that day. And he said, just slow it down high up to the back and just remember the plan. It's always plan A, plan A, plan A. Just do it. He slowed it down. He turned it around and he won. And he, he, he said, you know, we had it all planned. It was all worked out perfectly until 2017 and it all turned around. And then he started, wow. he said, that is the worst, that's the worst moment for him is when mm. Federer suddenly came out and, as I said, attacked on the backhand. And from that moment on, I think Federer won five in a row against Nadal. He started really mashing him up in finals, which was something he'd not done for years. Um, yeah. So that was really interesting. So Tony loved, Tony loved uh, the way Federer hit the ball. He talks about, you know, he, he, likes, he likes what happens with the ball, but he likes the way the ball gets there. He had a nice way of explaining it. Mm-hmm. So obviously he liked Federer's aesthetic a pleasing game and, and he talks about the rivalry with Rafa as being for him one of the greatest ever in sports not just tennis 100% and for those that are listening if we break down what Tony's taught we're talking about chipping the backhand right so if, you, if you're a lefty someone like Nadal with sort of like what we call a reverse forehand where it's got this wicked spin if you chip the return for Rafa the ball slows down it has backspin on it so it's going to land short and come towards the net yeah, that'll give Rafa enough time to turn any backhand into a forehand. And that yep. almost guarantees that ball number two, they call it the serve plus one, that the serve plus one ball for Rafa will then go to Federer's backhand again. And so he already kicking out wide nice and high. Then if he gets a chip return, he can do he can get into get into the court and then give the second ball high up to the backhand. Right. And if Federer hits yep. two high backhands for the first two shots of the point then you're probably going to win 80% of the points. So that that's the logic, guys, about not chipping the backhand or chipping the return to someone like Nadal, who's a lefty, yeah. uh, because your, your weak strike zone on the right, on the only sort of weakness to a one-hand backhand is when it's above the shoulder, right? And yeah. so I always look at Federer and I always say, you know what, if he had a two-hand backhand, yeah. How many slams would he have won? Yeah. Because when I look at the people who only, you know, obviously Djokovic and Rafa, the only place they had to go when they were in trouble was high to the backhand. Yeah. And had Federer had two hands on that side, how many slams would he have won, right? Would there be a bigger 
would he be the, the, the lead dog now, as opposed to, you know, probably going to be eventually getting broken by both players? <laughs> it's an interesting thought, isn't it? And it's what's, what's really interesting is how long it took Roger to figure that out, that he had to, that he had to go for it. He was obviously pretty stubborn with his game. You know, he's like, I've won God knows how many Grand Slams. I can do this myself. I don't have to necessarily change. But eventually he changed to the bigger racket. Eventually he became more aggressive on return. And something Darren Cahill said, who one of the people who almost coached Federer didn't quite get to do it. He went out for a trial in uh, Dubai for 10 days in 2012, I think early 2012. And it didn't work out for whatever reason. They, they weren't ready to work together. But he introduced uh, Federer to a little bit of data because, you know, until that point, I don't think Roger had really needed to look at it too much. And he just asked Federer to explain to him. They looked at an Aussie Open match, I think. And he said to him, you know, just tell me what you did in the last part of that match. And he said, I thought I was pretty aggressive. I went for it. I tried to, you know, take the match to him on the return. And then Darren played him back what had happened and showed the stats and the data. And Federer's like, Hmm. Okay. I don't, I didn't see it that way. So, you know, he was a person who took a while to, to realize, you know, what other people could see and in the same, the same way with his game too. So perhaps if he changed to uh, being more aggressive early on, maybe he would have won more, who knows? Mm -hmm. So the only other one, the only other player I can think of, obviously that is Federer-esque or close to Federer is Novak. And you had yeah. a chance to speak to Marion Vajda who, you know, alongside Tony Nadal would have very good insight as to what it was like to coach against Federer, like in game, right? And yeah. how, to, how to prepare because, you know, a lot of it is the coaches do spend, I, I would say from round of 16 on, right? If you're at Wimby, you're at US Open and you're coaching either Rafa or Novak, you are from the round of 16 on, focused on Federer, not looking past any opponents, yeah. but you're watching Federer to see how he's playing these next two matches prior to you meeting him in the semis and finals. And you don't allow your player to do that, but as a coach, you're coaching to win the next match, but you're also coaching to win, to, to face Roger. And so yeah. what did he give? Uh, what did he give you that you thought was interesting? I think he, he, Woody was really interesting. I think he fed uh, early on in their battles, Novak was uh, struggling to figure out how Roger could play the way he played without seemingly looking like he was trying. You know, it was, all, it was always a joke, wasn't it? Federer doesn't sweat. You know, he just he barely, you know, mishit a ball for ages. He wouldn't miss. It was all so easy. And when he came forward at the net, Djokovic was struggling to see how he could get the ball past him. And Marion just sort of calmed his mind, I think. He, he made him realise that he couldn't do what Federer does. So don't even try to think about that. You focus on your game. You get that depth. You get that incredible resistance and penetration and just force him to try to try and do something different. And, you know, as we know, Novak had some massive wins over Federer, including 2019 Wimbledon, which I, I imagine for all champions are incredible at forgetting, you know, bad moments that must still hurt Federer because, you know, he played better than Novak and, and, and Vida admitted, you know, I think Federer played better than Novak in all five of those sets. I'd say if it, you know, if it was, 
if the score was possible to do it, he could have won all five sets, but he played three shocking tie breaks. Um, yeah. And it, in, in the end, and, and those two match points that he'll, he'll rue for the rest of his life. But, but then again, will he, because he's won 20 Grand Slams and 103 tournaments and everything else there is to win. But Vida was, Vida was a really interesting guy. He just, he just sort of said he, he really enjoyed watching Federer. And I think they, they made Tony and Marion both have very good relationships with Federer, which is, to me, is quite interesting because in a rivalry like that, you would imagine that the coaches would be also butting heads on the sidelines. But there's obviously a camaraderie among coaches as well. They all see each other all the time and you respect what each other does. But also, I think they knew that these three guys were playing the best tennis any, well, maybe anyone's ever seen it, or it, at the same time in the same era. So they respected each other incredibly well. I, I think he just calmed Novak's mind and made him realise, you just do what you do best. Don't worry about no, Roger and see how that goes. Yeah, when you think about um, Rafa, Novak and Federer, I think about three and add Serena in this one, right? Yep. Three of the biggest businesses in tennis, right? Yeah. These are not just tennis players. They're full blown businesses. And when you talk about coaches and those in the camp, they understand it's a business and yeah. they understand that we all have an obligation to put on a good show. Yeah. Um, and I think at a certain level, no matter who you're coaching, if you're a good coach, then good coaches respect other good coaches, right? Yeah. Uh, and I think that is what you saw from, you know, the coaches, the, those three, right? Those three camps in general. Yeah. Like, it's like acknowledging you guys are doing a good job, right? Everyone's doing a good job. And even from Federer, you know what I mean? Some of those hard fought losses, he understands that the player did a hard, you know, had a hard fought lot uh, yeah. match, but also understood all the work that went into, that went into it. So one of the things that I think, you know, like the players and the coaches we always talk about is how Roger always looks so perfect. <laughs> and, you know, I always used to ask myself, that white Nike tracksuit looks like the one that I got and I <laughs> bought it, whatever, but it doesn't fit me the same, right? And it was like, does this guy have <laughs> custom-made Nike tracksuits? I mean, it's just almost too perfect. Was there anything in the book written about the way he dresses? Because he can take a black suit, white shirt, and a black tie and make it look like he is the Prince of England, right? Um, yeah. I mean, it, we we obviously, there are people that we didn't speak to, the, to for the book that we would have loved to have spoken to. You know, I didn't get a chance to speak to Andy Roddick. I know Roddick is great on Federer. Um, but he wasn't available. Um, and Anna Wintour would have been the one to speak to about Roger's fashion sense. Now, she yeah. had she had a big role to play in it. And uh, hopefully, you know, maybe we'll get to speak to her for a, an updated edition at some stage. But she she had a big role to play in making him into somebody who appreciated clothes and really understood what they could do for him. But in, in the book, um, Matteo Berrettini is very good on him, you know, because... You know, I don't, there's probably not a more handsome man than Berrettini out there playing tennis at the moment. And he loved, he loved Federer. Federer is the reason he began playing. Um, but also in the way he dressed, you know, he, he looked at the way Federer could scrub up in a suit and thought, mm, I can do that too. And look at Berrettini is now a boss ambassador. You know, he's sponsored by boss. 
So he's done very well for himself. And he, he said that Federer sort of changed, changed the way that sports people, tennis people uh, saw fashion. Um, and I think, you know, that, that, that's quite interesting. Nicola Mahu was somebody who, who calls him James Bond. You know, he said he became, at one stage, he became James Bond. Um, I mean, there were some errors along the way. Look, don't get me wrong. I think of, you know, Mary, Mary Carrillo talks about the, the jacket at Wimbledon against Roddick, uh, you know, when he came out after he beat Roddick in that epic final. And Roddick was distraught. And then out comes Roger in the uh, jacket with the 15 emblazoned on it already. Now, I, I'm sure that that wasn't his fault. I think Nike handed it to him. You know, what yeah. are you going to And he loved it because he enjoyed wearing, you know, nice clothes like that. But I, you saw Roddick's face and you thought, mm, OK, maybe that's not the, the best, uh, the wisest <laughs> move in the world that he ever made. But, yeah, in, in general, I think he made being smart in tennis quite trendy again, which, you know, it had gone full circle, hadn't it? You go back to Agassi in the 80s wearing whatever he fancied to... Um, you know, to Roger looking incredibly smart. And there's probably a good balance in there somewhere for the ideal tennis player, but certainly off the court, yeah. I mean, he, he dresses very, very well. So one of the things I've found fascinating over the years, and I've been traveling, coaching on tour almost 10 years now, is you think about him sort of being like the king of Wimbledon, right? You think about Rafa being the king of Roland Garros. What I really yeah. find fascinating is I have never seen roger in person in the locker room in the gym in the cafeteria at any slam other than wimbledon really interesting and i feel like at wimbledon i saw him four times a day <laughs> I, mean, I would see him walking to and from through the tunnel i would see him in the workout room in the basement of the cell they call it the cell uh, i would see him in the cafeteria, right? Mm. Taking up a table and a half. Yeah. Uh, if it started raining, I would see him in the Florida player warm-up area. Never saw him at the US Open. Locker room, stringer, gym, cafeteria. Never saw him at RG, other than like on the court, on the screen. Yeah. Uh, and, and I can actually say the same for, eh, maybe not Rafa. I've seen Rafa at the US Open a few times because mm. he won it, Samuel Sloan won it. Um, but very few, and I wonder when I think about how accessible he was at that tournament. Um, was it because he truly felt at home, or it could just be the way the grounds are laid out, right? And very few indoor facilities, uh, yeah. so you kind of had a captive audience. But you know, I felt like at other venues, he like got in and got out. You know, wasn't around. Yeah. Never saw him in Australia, right? So, but at Wimbledon, it was like you could just—you almost got tired of seeing him because you got tired of the awkward hello again, right? <laughs> you got tired of being nervous again as you walk past them. What, what, did anybody speak to how accessible he was there versus other places or how, how unguarded he was at Wimby versus almost invisible to other places? That's a good question. I think um, one person who spoke about, what, about him in the locker room in particular was Sergei Stakowski who beat Federer at Wimbledon in uh, 2013, famously, um, and obviously now is in Ukraine fighting um, for his country, which is pretty awesome. But yep. he said that in the early days, Federer was very accessible. You know, in everywhere he went, you'd see him, he'd be around in the locker room chatting and laughing. And, 
you know, a lot of people talk about how noisy Roger is in the locker room, which is another another matter. But I think that thing, it changed over over time. It got to the point where, you know, this is what Sergi said. It wasn't really serving him much good to hang around at slams because of, I guess, because of the tiredness factor as well. You know, you, as you get older, you need to really watch. I, I listen to cyclists in particular talk about time on their feet and, you know, they can't even go shopping to the supermarket because that counts as like 25 minutes on their feet that they shouldn't have. And I, I'm not saying that Roger thought the same way, but he definitely became less accessible in general. I think what I would say about Wimbledon is he rented the same house for which the way Wimbledon works with is different to pretty much all the other slams in that sense, isn't it? That the top players often rent a house two minute walk away, three minute walk away. Um, which makes their life so much so much easier uh, whereas you know us open you can't do that unless you fancy living in queens for a, right. for a few weeks um australia is not so bad but and, and paris you can you know you often stay in an apartment but it's still generally a, a, at least a drive away so i think wimbledon has that in its favor and he he had his whole family there always you know his his mum and dad stayed in the same house um they bought they had two houses in the street they will definitely felt at home when you win Wimbledon, you're a member for the rest of your life. So he used to come to Wimbledon sometimes without when people didn't know um, and hang around. And I, I think there's no question that he loved Wimbledon more than any of the other slams in terms of its feel. He he really sort of gets that whatever, you know, feeling Wimbledon give off. He, he appreciates a lot and it, he definitely felt more at home. So maybe that contributed to him being around the locker room more there i mean he's not he's never been like an intense practicer he's never been someone who was there for two hours drilling on court like nadal or Djokovic. and you know he might rock up because he'd done all the work beforehand that's the way he saw it he might have a little 20 minute hit but not too much so maybe he didn't need to be around as much as some but yeah i think it probably changed a bit as he got older but you're right wimbledon is the place you would see him all the time and i think mm -hmm. In, in the future years, you'll probably see him a little bit there too, you know, just popping in and out here and there. So uh, you've been very generous with your time. I got one more question. Um, sure. So you think about the fact that he probably will be passed by Novak and, and Rafa, right? And he will not have the Grand Slam record. Um, yeah. In my eyes, I view him as the greatest because of all around what he's meant to the game. Yeah. Um, the charisma, um, so his charity work, how he treated the other players, uh, Labor Cup. But do you feel that most people you talk to would feel the same way? Or do they say, yeah, he's one of the greatest, but I can't call him the greatest because he'll be, he will be beaten by both Rafa and Novak for Grand Slam totals? It's difficult. I, I think it depends on whether you're talking to people who, you know, watch tennis all every week of the year, who are constantly hearing this debate about the GOAT, um, or whether you're talking to people who maybe only watch tennis when it comes to Wimbledon or when it comes to the US Open in the US. And, and they see, you know, they look at it in a different way than, than we might by being so close to it all the time. I think there's a bit of uh, recency bias because you, you know, a lot of people, if you li listen to Macaro talking about who he thinks is the greatest of all time, he'll put, you know, he'll say Roger, but he'll say Rod Laver was his, you know, was a man that changed the game. And, 
you know, he won two grand, two grand slams, calendar year grand slams, for goodness sake. I, I think, I think in years to come, right now, people will probably be saying, ah, yeah, but Rafa's won more, Novak's won more. That's, you know, you can't be the best if you've not won the most of the best tournaments. But it's the same debate we have with Serena and Margaret Court. Does anyone think Margaret Court's a better player than Serena? Probably not. You know, Serena won 23 Grand Slams in the modern era against all the best players over several different uh, generations. Federer also did that, which is, you know, his longevity is one of the things I think will stand him in good stead when you come to debate it. So I think in a few years' time, it won't matter that he hasn't won as many, unless Novak goes and wins 30 or something. Yeah. Yes. But now that Alcaraz has come along, I think it might be a bit more difficult for some of these guys to pick up more. You know what's funny? I bet Roger's at home rooting for the young guy, right? It's like, <laughs> yeah. You know, not that you ever want to, you know, they're obviously comrades, right? So you don't want to see Rafa and Novak lose. But, you know, like one slam a year kind of keeps it within range. If yeah. Novak yeah. starts to run away with it, then it's, you know, it's no longer a conversation. So you're right. He's, he's at home rooting for Alcaraz right now, right? He's inviting him to practice and, <laughs> and you know, doing all types of work. I mean, I asked him at the I asked him at the Labour Cup when he saw Alcaraz, you know, covering the court the way he does at the U.S. Open. Did he think mm, I've made a right decision? And he, he said he did. He didn't say it completely tr like that. He just said, "I, I thought to myself, wow, did, how did we cover the court like that? How did I do that?" And then you do think, you know, that Christ, this guy is is very good. And there are others yeah. too. You know, TFO, unbelievable athlete. Some of these guys, the way they cover the court is out of this world. So. Maybe he's made the right choice. Well, I'll say, man, I, I, I took um, I took a deep read through the book. One of the things that I love about it is how you were able to uh, access people who had real direct connection with Federer versus an outsider yeah. writing a book that was highly speculative. Uh, so I appreciate that aspect of the book. That's um, good. And, you know, I encourage all, everyone to read it. I mean, I think there'll be 15 other books written about Federer. Sure. This one is a little bit unique because you were able to get people who had direct connections. And you could tell one of the things I thought was interesting is, look, I spent a lot of time with all these players. And even even the chapter with Tanasi Kakanakis had to say, right? Yeah. Sometimes the players aren't always as thoughtful. But one of the things I thought was interesting about the book is and speaks to Federer's um, sort of uh, majesty is that all of the responses from the players seemed well thought. And yeah. I think that when you think about how careful Roger and Tony were with his brand, what is very interesting is how careful all his competitors are with his brand. And I yeah. think that's the ultimate sort of testament uh, and, and you know sort of tribute and respect that we can pay him. Um, but man, I wanna congratulate you on a, a book that was well-written. Thank you. Uh, this has this has been the tennis.com podcast with Simon Chambers. Thanks for listening. And go and grab the, the title of the book for, for for everyone to to know, Simon. Go ahead and give it to us. The title is The Roger Federer Effect. All right. Thanks for joining.